Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Kristen Lepianca, and I'm here with Lane Fargo. Hello. And we are joined today by Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, Her debut novel, Social Creature, was named a book of the year by the New York Times, Vulture, and The Guardian, and also by us, by the way. Uh, We love it. (laughs) Uh, Tara writes about religion. Uh, as well, including the nonfiction book Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. And her latest novel, The World Cannot Give, came out in March. Welcome, Tara. Hello. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So The World Cannot Give is an incredibly powerful and evocative book. You want to tell us a bit about it? Uh, sure. So um, I like to sometimes pitch it as a bride's head revisited meets fight club. Uh, it's a uh, <laughs> female Bonnie and Clyde story set in a New England, uh, Maine specifically boarding school uh, among the members of a dwindling but still robust uh, Anglican chapel choir. And uh, it's a story of Laura Stearns, uh, our protagonist, who comes to, to the school, St. Dunstan's, in search of transcendence and meaning and all of those things that seem like when you're 15 or 16, the the most thrilling and yet uh, unattainable objects and finds them in the person of Virginia Strauss, the neurotic, intense, overachieving uh, president of the chapel choir. Virginia is also uh, somewhat of a zealot, having uh, converted uh, in her her very distinctive and slightly unorthodox way to her particular brand of Catholicism, uh, which informs her relationship both to the boys of the chapel choir, who treat her as something between uh, a mother hen and the Virgin Mary, and her relationship to Laura, which becomes more and more fraught as Virginia tries to solidify her hold over the chapel choir and the school more broadly. Yes, it's the, the it's such an interesting like specifically the idea of like a thriller set amongst a chapel choir is just it's, it's so awesome, right? Like it just really popped off the page. Do you have experience with the uh, New England boarding schools and chapel choirs? I, I, I yes, I know New England boarding <laughs> schools. Yes, uh, I I attended one. Uh, I went I went to a, a boarding school in in um, New Hampshire that very much informed kind of both the writing of this book and probably my life more broadly. I was very much that sort of weird, intense, wanting to live life like the novels that I read kid. I'd been homeschooled before and I I kind of went straight from being this kind of slightly feral homeschooled child <laughs> into um, a really intense boarding school environment where it was it was quite a sort of an academic school and people were very, very intelligent uh, and their emotional intelligence, mine included, absolutely did not match their <laughs> kind of book smarts or or the sense of themselves. And I think because Everyone had a sense of themselves as we are. We are the the, the, the we are smart kids. We are intellectual kids. Um, I think there were they were perhaps even less humble uh, than than like your average teenager about um, just how foolish they really were. And I can I can remember that that experience of people like taking what we read in, in Latin class and trying to like apply it to other people in just the, the worst possible way and saying like sitting down at the, the, the dining uh, hall table and 
looking across the table and saying, you know, you, you know what your problem with you is? I think that your social problems could be fixed if you like applied XYZ lesson that we just read today in Latin class, <laughs> yeah, which, which um, didn't go over so well, but that was just sort of completely normal. And I wanted to capture that exact way in which ideas feel so big and so relevant when you don't have the, for better and for worse, the life experience that teaches you to, to, to compromise or to <laughs> dial it back or to take ideology uh, alongside uh, a, perhaps a healthy dose of cynicism. Virginia, this little baby zealot, is so afraid of any kind of compromise of doing anything but the most extreme, most intense version of the thing she wants to do. And that was very much strong uh, from my experience. Um, I also, uh, a, a huge other influence of the book is is uh, not a boarding school, but I, I um, spent college and grad school in the UK at, at Oxford, which is a, a place that is still, um, I think, really distinct in how suffused by religion it is most of the the colleges. The, I want to say thirty nine colleges have their own uh, their own chapels, their own chapel choirs, and regularly do even song um, within this this sort of Anglican choral tradition. And I, I studied religion, so I was sort of particularly primed to be aware of it. But the intensity of kind of walking down uh, a street and hearing like eighteen year olds singing uh, the Magnificat wafting through these gothic uh, alleyways was was so formative and I wanted to, to kind of capture something of that experience as well. I don't sing myself. I'm not particularly good, uh, but my husband is actually in a, in a Renaissance um, sacred music choir. Hmm. And uh, during the pandemic, which is when I, I wrote this book, um, he, he was able to start rehearsing again outdoors and something that was so formative for him and, and, and sort of for me watching was realizing the way in which uh, particularly the sort of polyphonic music, you have one person singing their part, um, but then you have this sort of whole that is so much greater than the sum of its parts as, as the different voices meld together. And when trying to to write about these characters' quest for for beauty and for transcendence, that that image of a kind of collective whole that that transcends any one person uh, became a a guiding image to help me figure out how how these characters could relate to each other and how these characters could have something in common that feels big enough for them to to stick together even through the various interpersonal uh, dramas and then ultimately uh, more extreme conflicts that that mark the. Uh, the experience of the choir for all the characters. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I love so much about your books, both Social Creature and this one, is that feverish intensity <laughs> that you create, particularly around these female friendships, because for Laura, it's almost like Virginia is her religion. She's following her like a cult leader. And in the same way in Social Creature, even though Virginia and Lavinia, like they could not be more different. Like Virginia is so serious and <laughs> like dedicated she's getting up at you know 4 a.m and 5 a.m to jog miles and miles and keeping track of all her calories and Lavinia and social creature is like kind of proudly frivolous and if she was up at 5 a.m it would only be because she stayed up all night partying <laughs> um, but it's the same sort of like intense relationship between these female characters where it's like not quite sexual but it kind of is it's it's worshipful in this strange way I don't know could you talk about how you create those relationships I'm so fascinated yeah absolutely I am um, I think I'm 
I'm fascinated by the influence that people can have on one another. And I think the the place that I'm, I'm most interested in writing about is a place that is erotic without necessarily being explicitly sexual. That, mm. that place where, especially when you're at a formative age, and, and this is sort of speaking of my, my from my own experience as well as, as um, kind of more broadly... Uh, Actually, this is speaking, sorry, let me rephrase that. Speaking partly from my own experience, that when you when you both love someone and want them and want to be them and want to be with them and want what they represent, and all of those those things mixed together, um, it's a it's an absolutely erotic experience. Um, it is absolutely an experience of desire. And like I I, I see both of, of the relationship between Louise and Lavinian social creature and between Laura and Virginia in uh, The World Cannot Give as, as absolutely queer relationships and, and, and these as queer characters. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted in the particular sort of complications of those relationships to explore ways in which other factors um, complicate and intensify these relationships. These are between two people, but they're also between people who are trying to figure out who they are and people who represent some stage along that journey, which in, in, in each case renders that relationship somewhat extremely unhealthy because it's both a relationship between two people and a relationship where one person sees the other as, or really both parties see the other as, as ideas uh, and that mm. kind of gets in the way of their connection or complicates their connection. And, and for me that, you know, I, I think, I think one could say, you know, is it, it is this relationship therefore like less sexual or, or less explicit for being complicated. But I actually think that all um, erotic relationships, all relationships of desire um, are, do contain that sort of strangeness between I, I want this person. I love this person. And, this, there's some way in which this person fulfills other uh, desires, questions I have, and, and that often complicates our, our experiences of, of desire more broadly. But I think when it is particularly in this cultural context, like between two young women um, who, who are mirrors of one another, as well as um, potential uh, partners, then though that, that's a really great place to, to explore that dynamic and intensify that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that's such a formative experience for young queer women. Like I know when I was in high school and college and even somewhat now in my 30s, it's like if you find someone attractive physically or intellectually or anything, it's like you almost try to be like them because like that's what you find attractive. So that's what you want to be. And it just gets very complicated. They become this reflection of what you're striving for and what how you want other people to see you. And it's all part of that identity formation. And I don't know, I mean, how young straight women feel about this, but as a I wouldn't know. Woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of us here know. No. <laughs> can't relate but uh yeah just that like do I want to be her do I want to be with her and usually the answer is both (laughs) right and like the idea of wanting what she has or wanting what she wants it's all it can all get so confusing and and muddled and um you know as you as you come of age and try on different identities Mm -hmm. um it's like when there is such a powerful force in your life and you're trying on shades of 
who they are. Like you eventually come out on the other side knowing who you are, but in the throes of it, it can be very disorienting. And it's also such a, an interesting place to tell a story from, I think. So one thing that um, I kept really thinking as I was reading The World Cannot Give is uh, it has this like timeless quality of you can forget for large stretches at a time that this is actually a book that's set in the present because um, it, it has this feel of like an old boarding school novel um, that's sort of juxtaposed with characters like Bonnie, who's always taking selfies. And um, so it has this like this timeless, almost old fashioned feel. And compared to Social Creature, which is an extremely modern novel that's very uh, that references social media and um, Internet culture a lot it makes for two very different atmospheres. Can you talk a little bit about writing um, both of those different dynamics? Absolutely. I um, It was very much intentional to kind of create that old-fashioned uh, atmosphere and to kind of create a tension between, you know, the characters like Bonnie, who are very much in the modern age and of the modern age, and this, this attempt by the characters that's kind of very much self-conscious to escape from what what they keep calling the sclerotic modern world and the, the background to to the novel uh for, for those of you who haven't read it is that uh there's a book within a book uh a novel written by an alum of the boarding school called sebastian weber called all before them that is this formative book that's modeled in many ways like on brideshead revisited and kind of other intense campus novels of the, the 1930s and uh, Laura in particular, as well as the other characters are obsessed with this book. They're obsessed with uh, the person of the author who, who is um, in the story ran away from, from St. Dunstan's and fought and died uh, in the Spanish civil war after converting to Catholicism. And this, this book within a book becomes this touchstone of if we could escape modernity, if we could escape this sort of, polluted uh, modern Instagram age the way that these characters in this book did, then maybe we could achieve some sort of authentic transcendent experience. Uh, and so they keep using this phrase from the book. And um, I, I, as someone who uh, would totally have fallen for a book like that at that age, uh, if not uh, now, um, <laughs> Um, I'm sort of very much uh, sympathetic to the pull of, you know, an imagined, uh, even nostalgic, even if, if imperfectly nostalgic, uh, sense of wanting to escape the uh, panopticon of social media, to to escape the uh, kind of sense of of alienation that, um, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I would have said, is part of being in this corrupt modern world. And, you know, uh, I think I have the perspective I have now with, with perhaps a bit more distance. And I think the, the perspective that the uh, surviving characters come to is that, you know, the world's always been rather imperfect. Uh, and, and there is no sort of imagined past you can go back to where things were better in some way. And, and certainly other characters uh, are, are a bit more aware and characters like Isabel are, are perfectly aware to call the characters on, on their uh, somewhat, somewhat idealistic nostalgia. But at the same time, I really enjoyed uh, the process of writing that because I love writing about the internet. I do. I, I love writing about social media and, and in a book like Social Creature, which is all about social media. It was just a sort of dizzying, ever present nightmarish force but there was something too about being able to kind of get the characters away from that and get them to have certain kind of intense experiences and then 
thrust them back at certain key moments in the plot um, into this world where they're still part of a world where everybody knows everybody else's business and everything that gets recorded uh, or texted can be forwarded. Uh, and actually the the sort of main thrusts of the plot do come through the use of, of uh, modern technology without spoiling it. And that always becomes a way that, you know, these characters can't just cut themselves off from the world, even if they, they want to or, or, or try to. They're in the world they're in, and, and they've got to deal with it, both in terms of the sort of specific questions that social media brings up, but also in terms of the, the specific questions that, like, being a human being brings up, and, and none of them, um, not, not even Virginia, for all her attempts to do so, and her attempts to, like, ban cell phone use among her, her kind of coterie, she, she still can't escape the world either. It was so interesting reading this after reading your nonfiction book, Strange Rights, because the whole like sclerotic modern world thing comes up a lot in my favorite chapter of the book, uh, Twilight of the Chads, <laughs> about uh, men's rights activists where they're always talking about like, oh, if we could just go back to a time when men were men and like all of that. It just shows how that same idea, while it can have this like kind of sepia toned nostalgia and like dark academia and things like that. It can also be really weaponized for, for harm. So it was interesting to like read that and then read this book where I would definitely have fallen for this book as a teenager too, for the, for Sebastian's like mm -hmm. epic tales. I would have been like, Oh, he's so deep and like he had ideals and I would have been right there with them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then and, you know, it is that sense of like, once you think about it, and, and very much um, the kind of nostalgia of these characters was was intended to kind of evoke what in, in my book, Strange Rights, I call this kind of uh, atavism, this this sort of longing for this mythical past that is associated in particular with like, right wing, and often um, kind of masculinist right wing movements. There were versions of A World Cannot Give that I tried to write where there was actually a male character at the center and it did not work. And I think making uh, a female character with some of these views at the center kind of problematizes them interestingly because she, she of course, you know, in this world that she's, that she's hearkening back to uh, would not necessarily be the one to run off and fight and die for, for her ideals. But there, that, that presence that there is this kind of intense reactionary right wing um, element to to Virginia's nostalgia is present. Um, Sebastian Webster goes off and fights and dies in the Spanish Civil War, and to to a, a teenage Laura, they know this is just this, this sort of beautiful tragic ending for a character. But yeah, he, he dies fighting on the on the fascist side, uh, mm -hmm. and that's not something that Laura kind of thinks about. And it, it was complicated in writing the book um, to not be too heavy handed about it. Um, there are characters who are. Huh, like like Isabel, who are perfectly aware that, you know, Webster's not exactly a, a figure to emulate um, and sort of goes up against Virginia and against Webster in particular ways. But I was very conscious that I did not want this to be a novel about cancel culture or cancellation and whether or not you know, Sebastian Webster should be canceled was, I, I, I never wanted the book to be kind of about that or about those questions. Um, but what I was interested in is, is how does this book and the characters' relationship with this book kind of reflect the relationships they have with one another? And so Isabel, who's this outsider to the group, who is this sort of, this, uh, she's Virginia's ex-roommate. They may or may not have had some sort of lesbian relationship prior to the book. The details of that are ambiguous. 
Um, but Isabel sees Virginia's obsession with religion, her obsession with Webster, her kind of right-wing turn as all being of a piece with her kind of denying fundamental aspects of herself and reacts to this by kind of trying to get Virginia's attention, essentially, by uh, attempting to, to make the campus reckon with exactly who their Webster, their, their sort of famous son, is. These questions of what does Sebastian Webster mean and how do we unpack the the beauty and the transcendence from the like absolute moral compromises that are being made around him are questions that like all of the characters in their different ways, uh, complicated by their frustrated desire for one another, have to answer. I really love how you kind of juxtapose um Virginia's budding zealotry with Isabel's because Isabel is, it's not that she's particularly passionate on the subject of Sebastian Webster. Uh, it sort of just seems like she's being um, like, she's just trying to create controversy at times in, in to provoke Virginia. Um, but at, at the same time, it's like, it's just as strong within her as it is in Virginia. It's just kind of on the opposite side. And she's challenging Laura as well. Like she's, uh, there's that early scene where Laura is kind of talking about Sebastian Webster and Isabel's like, well, you know, he was a fascist. And she's like, what? Like, it's just the first time she's ever really had to reckon with that and question it. So Isabel's, she's such a great character. She's just always kind of poking and prodding at, at everybody. I, I love Isabel. And, and she, she's a character that kind of, she, I think she didn't even exist in the very, very earliest drafts of the book written years and years ago. And then she was, she was sort of a minor character who appeared in a couple of scenes and then she was just so awesome that she she kind of became more and more important and then suddenly she becomes one of the most important characters in the book with each successive draft and what I love about Isabel is that she she is someone who kind of sees through a lot of the the hypocrisy of um both Virginia and the choir she you know and she comes from a completely different perspective she she is not a a wealthy uh legacy at the school she is she is uh an out lesbian she is from a not a privileged background she is someone for whom uh the idea that the school has mandatory even song is kind of offensive and yet she too has in her pursuit of transcendence um, a kind of different vision of what that looks like. She has a vision of a better world, a world where this school like leaves behind the past and embraces a different kind of uh, more inclusive future. And she's, she's kind of, she's not wrong uh, even when she's kind of directly opposed to whatever Virginia, who, who, whose Laura's sympathies are initially with, wants. And I love having her both as a counterpoint um, to the choir, but also as someone who has another, like, also has a vision, also has uh, an idealism, has an idealism that she too, as a, a teenager, like, it's not particularly complex or, or nuanced or um, dialed back through life experience. She's, she's as much as caught up in the intensity of how she sees the world as, as the other characters. And, and that's something that I, I really wanted in this book that the, I, I think that there, there's a, a trope in the, uh, the campus novel of a certain kind, particularly the trope of the, the, the special coterie that the narrator is sort of, or the, the protagonist is absorbed into. And they're like 
very special and distinct and the rest of the campus is kind of boring. Um, I, I wanted kind of everybody, even the people in the special secret chosen group, but also the people outside it to be intense and fully human and caught up in the same longings and desires as as Virginia, just in a slightly different way. So that when when Laura has to make the kind of decisions that she makes about how far am I willing to go to support Virginia and how many of the sort of awful things she does will I turn a blind eye to because I, I believe in her. Um, there is a plausible alternative. And you know, had Laura had chosen to be friends with Isabel rather than Virginia at the end of the book, uh, beginning of the book, rather, uh, things might have turned out very differently for everybody. That's true. <laughs> On that note, I would love to talk about Bonnie a little bit. I loved this character. I mean, I think in the hands of an author less <laughs> skilled than yourself, she could have easily been a one-note character. She's kind of at first presented as this, like she's obsessed with Instagram. She's always taking selfies and sending like sex tapes to this guy that she likes and but as the story goes on she is becomes just as complicated as anyone else and um she's still though she's like the other girl that Laura and Virginia are sort of like not like other girlsing against they're like we're not like her but they are like there are so many commonalities between these characters Absolutely. Bonnie is like my, Bonnie's my favorite character in the book. She might be my favorite character I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and whenever people tell me that Bonnie's annoying, I'm like, yes, but she's so great. Uh, because Bonnie is a sort of, uh, who who starts the book as, as Laura's roommate, is a sort of deranged social media addict who wants to be an Instagram celebrity and is obsessed with the choir as this kind of aesthetic phenomenon because, um, you know, she can, she can post about it and it's something that gives her this boarding school aesthetic. And yet, as you say, is she really that different from Virginia and Virginia's interest in choir? Or is she, um, and I don't think she is. I think she doesn't necessarily have the slightly old timey language to describe it. She is not able to kind of frame her desires in a way that seem kind of sophisticated to, well, to Virginia. Not that any, I think any alpha female type could ever be, I don't think Virginia would, would ever let kind of another woman into that space that wasn't as deferential as Laura is. And I think of, of Bonnie as something as a little bit of a holy fool. She kind of is in some ways extremely innocent, gets really badly hurt uh, in the course of the novel through things that Virginia does. Um, but all she really wants at the end of the day is to be part of this thing that she loves. And one of the moves that I, I wanted the reader to make reflecting kind of Laura's own realization is that she starts out this just extremely annoying ball of energy and memes. And yet, as we see her become this kind of sacrificial lamb to Virginia's schemes, um, suddenly her, her humanity comes into, comes into relief. And we realize like, oh, this, this person has desires too. This person hungers for the transcendent too. And we've just been kind of dismissing her because she, she, you know, doesn't, talk and walk like she stepped out of Brideshead Revisited. And I, I really wanted her to, to become this sort of, in some ways, the most tragic. I mean, no, everyone, there's, there's so many tragic characters in the book that she doesn't even like make top three, but among the more tragic characters <laughs> in the book. She's so um, like calculating as well. Like that's part of what I love about her, like the way that she 
takes these opportunities to like joining the choir the way that she does and the way that she changes her image on social media is very like savvy and and interesting. Like she's just as strategic and calculating as Virginia is in some ways. It just is expressed very differently. Yeah. I loved Bonnie. (laughs) Anyone who says she's annoying can fight me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's interesting uh, parallels between Bonnie and the world cannot give and Mimi in social creature uh, in that, like it's this sort of third wheel who seems at the beginning as maybe this person is like, Oh, this is embarrassing and sort of cringy. But then sort of as the story goes on, uh, the protagonist realizes there's actually so much more to her. Uh, and I think that's a really great counterpoint to the, the extremely commanding presence of Virginia and Lavinia to have this this person who seemed like oh this was just another another one of her followers but then you know as the story unfolds there's actually more agency in her in her character than you originally realize the, well, it's it's funny I was I was going to to say the same thing that like body is the Mimi of this book and mm-hmm. I do have a particular soft spot for a certain kind of character I think and that is a sort of cringy holy fool character that's sort of equal parts like terminal brain poison and also um you know a genuine like genuine idealism and just a complete inability to like figure out how to put those things together um and I think it's that that I I like it too because I think that my my instinct if left unchecked uh uh if I were if I you know if I my instinct if left unchecked is to kind of want to go and read the the 19th century novel or to read the, the Brides Had Revisited and kind of immerse myself in, in you know, the past, as it were. And I, 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 maybe less now, but certainly when I was like a teenager. And there's something about like bringing in that character who is of the moment, who is in this, this world that, that kind of, I find often will like, keep me from going too, too far off the deep end of like, these characters are in a crypt and they're reading poetry. And then, like, there comes Bonnie, and suddenly it's it's 2022 again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. It was always, like, I was forgetting. It's, like, the 1930s until Bonnie shows up and is like, let's take a selfie in the crypt. <laughs> like, <laughs> just interrupts that uh, fantasia of, of the past. Yeah, totally. So since this podcast is called Unlikable Female Characters, I noted with great interest that Virginia, multiple times in this book, identifies herself as not likable. Like she just straight out is like, well, I'm not likable. So like, I can't do this or this won't happen for me. Um, I know there are a lot of characters who, I mean, this is what we've talked about on the show for many years now, who readers will term unlikable, but it's very rare that I see a character in a book just like outright say it about herself. Yeah, she just owns it. Like just, Yeah. I think it's I mean, it's it's both I think constructed and kind of uh, honestly one. I think I think of Virginia as someone who very much wants to be not like other girls. She wants to be special and she wants to be distinct and she wants to kind of to deny her place as a kind of social woman. She doesn't want to be treated as you know she's she's one of the boys in a particular way and a lot of her even relationship to sex seems to be about being like, I'm not like other girls. I am, I, I, I'm too good for sex. I'm too, not quite pure, but like, I'm, I'm too busy thinking about, um, you know, the problems of liberalism to deign to have sex with high school boys. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I want, I'll get in a second to, to sort of the, the, the 
queer implications of that. But I do think that so much of it is just this desire to be distinct and different and not like the contemporary world, whatever that means. But I think there are scenes that we see where some of this is constructed, most of this is constructed, but it does come from a place of real insecurity that if she tries to do the thing, to do the the dating thing, to do the please like me thing, uh, she will fail. Um, and we see this like when she goes to a school dance and sort of decides to, you know, I'm going to dress up. And 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 at one point she sort of tries to date and she is just so uncomfortable. And this this person we've seen as the most confident, uh, alluring cult leader is suddenly like tripping over her high heels, being like, oh my God, don't talk to me. Uh, and she's she's not comfortable in that register. And um that's something that I that I I was really interested in exploring that she is both this like vulnerable teenager who just like doesn't know how to be. And she's also her way of doing that is making herself into this, this character that where unlikability is sort of a virtue rather than just like an unfortunate element of being an awkward teenage girl uh, that no one really likes. But particularly when it comes to her, her sexuality, I think there's a way too where she gives various answers in the book none of which exactly uh, cohere with one another about her, her her sexuality. I think she herself probably doesn't really know. We know that she has some sort of queer relationship with with Isabel. At some of uh, there's another at some point in the book, she experiences a desire to be in a heterosexual relationship, and yet her 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 sort of sense of sexuality is all bound up too in this like I don't want to be I don't want to be part of this world at all. Like like I want to get off this bus. This is all just like awful and I, I'm either above it or afraid of it or some combination thereof. And it's something that particularly comes up with her relationship with Isabel. Now, Isabel is an out lesbian at school, very comfortable with her sexuality, um, but is not out at home to her her sort of homophobic dad. And there's Virginia, who is from a kind of very progressive background where with very liberal parents who would probably uh, be reasonably if not entirely supportive if Virginia were out and Isabel keeps saying like what what are you doing like you have the perfect background situation for you to be like who you seem to be who I think you are and yet you've chosen to convert to this religion that tells you that it's bad like why are you doing this why are you shooting yourself in the foot like this and again it's in Virginia I think you know, never gives us a satisfactory answer, but I think it becomes increasingly clear that Virginia just kind of wants to cut herself off from any possibility of being intimate or authentic with another person. And it, this is certainly not the only element of, of her religiosity, but it is a big part of it is to create this wall of, I, I'm not like the other girls, like I am the Holy Virgin. And I, you know, even if, if we have this, 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 this tension or this relationship, I, I am not I, I couldn't possibly be straight or queer, really, for most of the book. Uh, I am just I am just in this box of of up there being unlike all other women ever. <laughs> yeah, and it's so I mean, I definitely got that the sense of insecurity. And that was what was so relatable about the character in this strange way, because I think like any of us who weren't the like popular kids in high school, which I would say most people who become novelists were not the popular kids <laughs> in high school. <laughs> <laughs> we were like the weirdos right um it is this it's this 
protecting yourself by being like, I don't care if you like me, I'm going to push you away and reject you and reject everything before I can be rejected. And that's a, a lot of what she's doing. So I mean, it makes you have a lot of sympathy for her, even when you're like frustrated because she is such an extreme character and Laura starts to become frustrated with her as the book goes on because she's just so extreme in like everything that she does, including, um, well, we won't spoil anything. <laughs> We're going to talk after this is over. <laughs> <laughs> she, she goes hard. I'll say that. I love in this book how you have this tremendous sense that it is building to something that's going to be like terrible but you just have no idea what it what it is for such a long time uh and then it finally reveals itself and it's so devastating like we can't spoil it so we can't really talk about it but very very well done uh we absolutely oh. love that thank mm -hmm. you um what's really really funny is um every draft until the most recent one including like long after the book sold started with the ending and it was oh. a flashback and so um, it was a really, really late in the game decision to to have the ending be a surprise and not for sort of for a foregone conclusion. Um, and it's it's one, and, and it wasn't ultimately about building tension exactly as much as it it became a different kind of story. I think originally it became a uh, it, it started out as a story of this thing happened. How do we explain it? And became instead a story about like this is a linear Bildungsroman about. Uh, Bonnie's favorite word about uh, Laura, <laughs> and so it's it's so interesting to me to like hear people talk about the kind of the final act twist or or the way that the book ends, which I will not spoil on the podcast, uh, only because it's it, I always I always forget that it's a surprise, and that makes me makes me very very happy. And I think that I like the fact that you, we we all know something really awful is going to happen, and the oh, precise yeah. the precise way in which. Um, in which in which the book ends, I hope, kind of is is a combination of surprising and inevitable, which is always the a sweet spot. Yeah, there's this dread the whole time and you do know it's going somewhere, <laughs> somewhere not good. But the way that it turns out, it's one of those perfect endings that like I get so I've ranted many times on the show before about the expectation in any sort of crime adjacent novel that there's going to be this big shocking twist at the end. And so often it's something that's just like tacked on there for pure shock. But this was the kind of thing where like when you go back, every single piece is there and like it could not have gone any other way than this, but you don't see it until it happens. And then it's just like, oh God, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am. Um, well, I remember once I, uh, I'm glad that the ending is what it was. Cause again, even before um, like earlier, earlier drafts of the book, and I, I've been working on a version of this book for about a decade had completely different, like, they started with the ending, but the ending was slightly different. And I remember I was in an Uber pool back when they were Uber pools. And I was in the back and another couple's in the front. And I was talking to someone about like how I thought about maybe it wanted, I wanted to start the book or I wanted the, the big kind of that, that moment in the book to look like. And the Uber pool people in the front, as they were getting out, they turned back and they're like, I don't know you, but you should do that. Cause that sounds really cool. And I want to read that. <laughs> Uh, so that's that, that's how it happened. It's just another thing the pandemic has taken from us, like I writing know, advice for people in Uber pools. Uber pool. <laughs> well, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, Tara, can you tell us what you're working on next? 
Sure. Uh, so my next book will be a non another nonfiction book coming out from Public Affairs in early 2023, and that's called Self Made: Curating Our Image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, uh, and it's a in sort of intellectual history of the idea of. Um, making yourself uh, and the ways in which make, making yourself is a kind of spiritual act, looking at everything from Renaissance genius to the self-made capitalists of the Gilded Age to the the dandies like Oscar Wilde onto on and through the, uh, the present day. Uh, and then um, I can't tell you much about it, but uh, this week I will be finishing the first draft of my third novel. Uh, it's very much a rough draft, but uh, uh a third novel is is certainly uh, in the works. Fantastic. Well, I'm dying to read both of those. <laughs> yes. Yes, you are 100% on my auto buy list. Like you could, yes. whatever, whatever you write, I'm there. Oh, awesome. That's so kind. So where can people who are listening find out more about you on the internet? Sure. Um, so my website is taraisabellaburden.com. Uh, and the only uh, public social media I use is Twitter, uh, which I shouldn't for my own sanity, but I'm uh, at NotoriousTIB on Twitter. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's, it was so delightful. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is UnlikableFemaleCharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at UnlikableFemaleCharacters. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.